thank you for your amazing love for us that was demonstrated by your willingness to give up the glory of heaven and humble yourself and take on the form of a servant to become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, as you went to a cross in the place of the guilty. Guilty sinners like each and every one of us and each and every person on planet earth. Thank you that you loved us so much that you were willing to take a perfect payment. It was a complete and satisfying payment. That there was nothing left to be paid by us. There was no debt remaining. It was marked paid in full. And that it was 100% sufficient to take care of our need. Pray that we would see that only through accepting as a free gift that offer of salvation can we be born into your family and spend eternity with you. Pray that we would not pervert the gospel or ruin the gospel by trying to add our own human effort to the back end of it or the front end of it. We wouldn't try to insist on trying to do our part because the Bible says that it's either all grace or it's all works, but there's nothing in between. So the moment you add one work or human effort to what was grace, it's not grace anymore. Pray that we would see that, that we could communicate that clearly to the community around us, that we could be reminded of that as we wake up each day, that you having done for us everything us having no capacity to do anything apart from you, that we would operate in dependence on you, remembering your sacrifice and being motivated by your love so that we would step out through the power of your spirit and let you lead and work and direct in our lives in ways that we would never naturally choose. Pray that we would see that through the example of Gaius here as we're going through Third John, that we could be encouraged by his wonderful example of selflessness Pray that we would see that, again, that's the kind of quality that only you can produce in us. Pray that we would let you do that. Pray for our Sunday school programs, the nursery, those that are working behind the scenes, even for the upcoming girlship that's going to take place this afternoon. Thank you for all the hard work that goes into that. But pray that you'd give wisdom to those who are speaking your truth, teaching about your word. Pray that you'd give them the ability to do it clearly. Pray that you'd do that even with me, that I'd have wisdom this morning, that you'd speak in a way that would be easy to understand. It would be convicting and challenging. It would build us up. It would get our focus back on the right things as we naturally drift to the cares and concerns of this world or drift back to focusing on ourselves. Pray that you would allow this church to be a bright light in the darkness around us. Pray that we would do it in a way that gives you all of the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of this morning's message is Faithfully Generous and Hospitable. Faithfully Generous and Hospitable. Generous and hospitable are two adjectives God says should describe Christians. Not some Christians, they should describe every Christian because they're qualities of God himself that he wants to manifest in our lives. So when you say, why is that? Why is it, well, in part because it's who God is, and if he's going to be working and revealing and shining himself through us, then those would be qualities that ought to be true of us. But also because those are two qualities associated with loving people selflessly. Two qualities associated with loving people selflessly. When you're generous and you're hospitable, it's all motivated by an underlying love for somebody that isn't concerned about what it will cost you to serve them to lift them up, to benefit them. You're not focused on self anymore. You're focused on loving others through service to them. And so when you think about, well, what is the definition of generous? It's showing a readiness to give more of something than is strictly necessary or expected. Hospitable is 
friendly and welcoming to strangers or guests. And those are two qualities that are tied directly to a love for the brethren that God has promoted so heavily in his word. Especially as he, you look at the New Testament and the teaching of Jesus Christ, so often he was teaching us that to love him is to allow his love to flow through us and be shown and demonstrated through love for one another. Not because we're manufacturing that or making that happen, but because if his spirit is at work inside of us and we're responding to his love and we're seeing his sacrifice and we're seeing his selflessness and we see his servant mentality, then that starts to, as he is working and changing us, it starts to become our mentality. It starts to characterize our lives, again, not because of us, but because of him working in us. And you think about being generous and hospitable. If you were to ask people, do you want to be known as generous and hospitable? Naturally, everybody wants others to see them that way. It's, it's something that even the world would promote. Is wouldn't it be good to have a reputation for being generous and hospitable? So you say, yeah, I want to be known that way. I want to be seen that way. Who doesn't want to be well thought of by others? Unfortunately, in reality, though people would say they want to be seen that way, most people are too self-centered, self-focused, and selfish to consistently be described in this way. Think, think that through a little bit. You want to be known that way, but the reality is the flesh says what? The flesh naturally says, me first. The Word of God tells us that all seek their own. The Word of God constantly has to challenge believers to care about each other. If we see somebody having a need to give of ourselves, to provide to meet that need. The Bible has to teach us that. Why? Because though we, in our arrogance and pride, we want to be known as generous and hospitable, those aren't natural qualities. Those aren't the kinds of qualities that the flesh truly produces. And if it does, it's only because it wants something else in return. It wants to be seen of men or praised by men, which is purely selfish. So when we think about authentic generosity or hospitality, it can only be wrought by the Spirit of God. See, God produces a supernatural way of thinking and living in believers who are looking to Him and allowing Him to direct in their lives. This could accurately describe you that you are generous and hospitable in a faithful way and that that is authentic. It's not being manufactured or produced just as a show for someone else. See, in Third John here, John praises Gaius for having this Christ-directed mindset in this next section that we're going to look at. So if you're not there already, turn, if you will, to Third John. We're looking for verse 5. Third John, verse 5, as we'll pick up. We're going to go backtrack a little bit, though. And just for our context, we're going to build up to that and do a little bit of reading, assuming I can get to Third John here myself. All right, let's pick it up in verse 1. The elder, who we've talked about, my position that that refers to John, but to the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, and then be loved again. I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. I'd like you to have spiritual and physical well-being. And in, the, in this instance, because John had heard so much about 
the, phys- or the spiritual well-being of Gaius, he's saying, I hope that your physical well-being matches what I've heard about your spiritual well-being. Verse 3, for I rejoice greatly. This is a cause for joy. When brethren came and they testified of the truth that is in you. And how could they see that just as you walk in truth? There was a manner of living that was corresponding to the internal truth that John had accepted and was allowing to direct his life. The spirit of truth, when the spirit of truth is directing our lives, then our lives can be described, our manner of living can be described as walking in the truth. And he says, I rejoiced greatly when I heard that that was true of you. Now I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. What could be a cause for greater celebration than to see our fellow believers, and in this case my children, he's referring to offspring in the faith, those that he had impacted, those that he had invested a lot into, people that he had some affiliation with, he had this role, kind of a parental view towards, as a pastor's heart towards these individuals. He says, but what greater joy could a parent have than to see one that they viewed as under their care walking in truth. And we talked about even if you don't have children, you can see people under your care in the sense of, in a spiritual sense. Now we pick up here in verse 5. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. What a nice description of him. Who have borne witness, the strangers have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. Verse 8, we therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. You could argue that that's maybe even a key verse of this letter, this idea of this generosity and hospitality towards fellow believers, especially those who are laboring in the, for the work of the ministry. So let's dive in here a little bit more de- within a little bit more detail here this morning. Let's start unpacking verse 5. But verse 5 says, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. So I'm not going to dwell on it, but beloved we talked about because it came up twice. And then in addition to the word I love in truth, so beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved again, he says. Now he starts off with beloved again here in verse 5. Are you seeing a theme here? Tell us, Like I said last week, tell us how you really feel about Gaius. But it's defined as dearly loved and cherished or the object of one's affection. Now when it's applied, this underlying word agape that's applied to or used here to form the the longer word beloved, that word of course when it's applied to the example of Jesus Christ, that's the word that's used of his love too. And of course, his love was described as selfless and sacrificial. So this mentality of loving people or caring enough about people, having a mindset toward them where they are cherished in a way that you want to do what's best for them in light of eternity without regard for cost to yourself. And so when you take Christ's example of this kind of love, you can expand that definition a little bit. Now this is the third time that John refers to Gaius in this way and the repetition serves to emphasize John's feelings towards him. So some translations, this word beloved can also be translated as dear friend. Dear friend, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. And you think about that, beloved. That's pretty appropriate to even use the the phrase dear friend in place of beloved 
They're synonymous in a sense because it's impossible to have a dear friend that isn't loved and cherished. If they're not loved and cherished, then they're not a dear friend. You could argue that, depending on your definition of what real friendship is, they're not even a friend. Isn't it true that too often the relationships in our lives, they're not dear friendships? Too often they're superficial. They're acquaintance kind of level relationships. And God says amongst believers, it's supposed to be familial. It's not supposed to be superficial acquaintance level relationships. It's supposed to be deep, deep affection and concern. That's built into a familial familial understanding of what it means to be somebody's brother or sister in the faith. And so John makes it clear that I'm not talking about some just passing familiarity with this individual. I'm talking about a deep concern and love that I have for this individual who I view in a in this instance, in a parental way. Now we move on, though. You do faithfully whatever you do. You do faithfully whatever you do. See, John is now going to expand on what the phrase walking in the truth involves as it relates to what was reported to him about Gaius. He had just got done saying, I have no greater joy, in verse 4, than to hear that my children walk in the truth. Well, what's an example of that? You do faithfully whatever you do. That's what walking in the truth involves or what it looks like. And so we look at some words here or definitions. Faithfully means trustworthy, reliable or dependable, but this is a clicker here, often in conjunction with steadfast affection or allegiance to someone or something. When you're faithful to somebody, there's usually an underlying affection and allegiance to that thing. So if you're faithful, even in a think about a friendship, that, that friendship is based on this affectionate love that you have for another person. And then as a result of that affection or allegiance that you have to that individual, you're trustworthy, reliable, or dependable, then you'd say you're a faithful friend. And so there's a little bit more to that context besides just being trustworthy or reliable. Now the idea here is you act faithfully in what you do for the brethren. And we're going to get to that at the end of this at the end of verse 5 here, but you act faithfully in what you do. So you do faithfully whatever you do. You act faithfully in what you do. Faithful as it relates to actions that ought to be true of a man of faith. So what, what do you mean by you act faithfully? Well, faithful in the sense that your actions are consistent with what ought to be true of a man of faith. Practice that is consistent with position. Faithful in the sense that if the Spirit of God is leading and directing and working in your life, then you're going to be acting in a way that describes that affection that you have both for your fellow believer, but also the affection that you have for God himself. We love him because he first loved us. It's the love of God or the love of Christ that constrains or compels us. Now, his love for us and our love for him, you can see it in both directions. And so that then ends up affecting behavior when the Spirit of God is affecting thinking. And as the Spirit of God is affecting thinking, then the Spirit of God is free to direct and move and lead and undertake in the life of believers. And when that's true, you could be described as faithful, meaning reliable, trustworthy, dependable, with that undertone of affection and allegiance towards others. Now, the other aspect of this faithful, so faithful in the sense that your actions are as they ought to be or they're consistent with 
your position in, in God's family, but then also faithful as it relates to actions growing out of one's faith. See, the object of the Christian's faithfulness should be God. You are being faithful to God when you care for the brethren. And so you think about God is directing and leading in your life in a manner that is inconsistent with his will and his word and his plan and his purpose. So if God is for people and if God loves people desperately and if God has a sacrificial servant-minded selflessness toward people and he demonstrated that, then that's what he wants to be true of you too. He wants to produce that in your life. And you think about pleasing God. You see, nothing pleasing to God is ever produced in your life apart from God producing it in and through you. So when you think about you do faithfully whatever you do, you act faithfully in what you do for the brethren, that is only ever going to be true because God is producing the underlying thinking and the actions through the power of his spirit in your life. See, walking by faith involves believing and trusting God to direct, enable, and empower you to think and live in a manner that pleases him. And we're going to get to that in a little bit, a little bit more in a second when we talk about where he says, for the namesake, for the namesake in, where is it? Verse 7, for the namesake. There is no such thing as doing anything faithfully. We're ta- he's talking then about re- the reality, the practical reality of Christian living. There is no such thing as practical Christian living that's consistent with God's plan for your life that isn't also produced by God in your life. Without me, he said, you can do nothing. Even if you were to manufacture the kinds of things that on the surface look like the kinds of things that God would want to be true in your life, he wouldn't have any glory in that. He wouldn't be pleased by that. He wouldn't be celebrating that if it was wrought from your rebellious spirit toward him and your rejection of his undertaking in your life. God wouldn't be pleased by that at all. So you think about that. That's something we have to wrap our minds around. That you could be described in this way just as Gaius is, but only when you get yourself out of the way. That's something that is difficult. Now the other thing is this is in the present tense. You do faithfully, meaning this is action in process. This was characteristic of Gaius' ongoing mindset and corresponding actions as a process over time. It was in the present state of being, this was true of him. It wasn't referring to a one-time action where he was faithful. All too often, I don't want to step on too many toes, but all too often we have one-time actions that are split up with a whole bunch of selfishness and self-centeredness, rebellion and rejection of God, doing our own thing, having not a concern or care in the world for him. And then another thing, and another thing. And God says, I want to live life with you. I want your manner of living to be focused on me. I want your thinking to be affected by, by me, by looking vertical, by going vertical with your thinking all of the time. I don't, I don't want just little nuggets or little flashes in a pan in your life and then back to the same old, same old. That's what Paul is talking about when he's talking about growth over time progressive sanctification. That's why he's talking about that I could know him. He says that you could know the height and the breadth and the depth. That you could understand the depth of God's love because in doing so, you would then have a mindset that says, why would I want to live life apart from him? He's my all in all. He's done everything for me. 
He loves me desperately, and he wants to provide an abundant life to me if I could just trust him, just get my eyes on him. In any event, we move on. We see for the brethren and for strangers. So you act faithfully in what you do for, and then there's an object of that. Those actions, those faithful actions, they're directed, that generosity and hospitality that we're going to get to, it was directed at somebody, and it was for the brethren and for strangers. So you act faithfully in what you do for whom? The brethren. And it simply refers to his fellow believers, your siblings in the family of faith. Now remember, you see it here again. I already brought it out. We're now repeating here, but faithful actions are connected to, again, affection and allegiance. That's a part of the definition of faithful. So for the Christian, this starts with a love response to God's love. As I respond to his love, then what? God produces in me a Christ-like love for others, which in the focus of the context here is other believers. That's how it works. I don't manufacture this. I don't produce this. I'm incapable of this on my own. But Christ in me, the hope of glory, Christ working in me, his spirit working in me, can undertake to produce in me a manner of living that's consistent with God's character. And the first of those fruits that the spirit could produce in my life, if I could get out of the way, would be what? Love. Just any kind of love. No selfless and sacrificial love that's like God's love because it's his character that's producing it. And so you see that in terms of the object of the faithfulness, the faithful actions, they're directed toward the brethren. Now when you see this part, and for strangers, it's not a separate category. Now you could take a different view on it. There is a little bit of disagreement on it, but I think most take the view that this should be viewed as, for the brethren, when you get to and for strangers, you act faithfully toward fellow believers even though they are strangers to you. Meaning you didn't know them ahead of time. It's not talking about two separate categories here. And it qualifies and describes the fellow believers that John has on his mind. When he's speaking to Gaius, he's talking about traveling missionaries and ministers, teachers. We'll get to that in a second, how you can see that even though it's not directly stated here, how you can see it indirectly. But who he didn't know. Man, it's one thing to show up in the life of somebody as led and directed by God's Spirit that you do know, or even in your own flesh, to have a concern for people that have invested something in you, and so then naturally you are willing to invest something in, in them. But God's saying, if it's His love that's permeating and working in and through us, it's not going to be concerned for how well you know somebody. The only consideration as it came to, well, it wouldn't, even, it wouldn't even be a consideration as it re- relates to lost or unlost. God, God wants us to love people and have a concern for people regardless of which state they're in. But when it comes to loving fellow believers, he says you should not be concerned about how well you know them. You shouldn't be concerned about that. Now, I will say that, you know, is there really such a thing as strangers when it comes to brothers and sisters in Christ? Not in a positional sense, right? They're your brothers and sisters. They're your, they're your family. When you're thinking right and your eyes are focused on him, isn't it true that even in a practical way, strangers that are fellow believers aren't really strangers? Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever been in a place where you got to talking to somebody, find out that what? They're a child of God. They're a brother or sister in the faith. Isn't it funny how the whole dynamic of that relationship is different or that conversation is different than it would be if you, had, if you didn't have that common bond in Christ? 
You've experienced that, right? I hope you have, because that all of a sudden becomes everything. And you say, well, now the fact that we haven't lived all this life together is sort of irrelevant considering the fact that we're children of the same king. We're heirs of heaven together. We're princes and princesses. We're royalty. And that common faith in Christ now all of a sudden transcends and takes a superiority to everything else that otherwise would have been important in the, the way that people feel each other out or get to know each other in the normal worldly sense. Because that's kind of a process, isn't it? Getting to know strangers in, in a human, a purely human sense. So the idea is you act faithfully toward fellow believers even though they are strangers. Now we move to verse 6. Who have borne witness of your love before the church? Now he's continuing his discussion of these strangers. These brethren that were strangers to Gaius, they have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you do well. So John now recounts the good reports he has received from those who have benefited from Gaius' hospitality. So they, these traveling missionaries, ministers, teachers, they have told the church here of your loving friendship. Now picture that. Imagine somebody who was sent out by the church. They went out on some type of an excursion, a mission outreach. They went and did some fair evangelism. They come back and what do they do? They recount stories of what happened along the way, people that they met. And in this instance, the part of that story was to talk about the hospitality and the generosity that they had received from their brother in Christ, who his name was Gaius. What a fun thing to come back and report that along the way as we are out there in a crooked and perverse world, as we are out there in the midst of darkness trying to shine the glorious light of Jesus Christ, we came across some fellow believers. And in doing so, they were generous and hospitable in a faithful way to the Lord, to us, in a loving way they showed their love to us in a way that actually eased our burden and provided to meet our needs. How encouraging must that have been for these traveling teachers, missionaries, ministers to be able to come back and tell that story. Probably one of the highlights of the journey. Now you have, they have told the church here of your loving friendship. And you see that word again. It's that awkward, squirm-inducing word, love, again. You know, we have a society, especially there's a stoicism sometimes amongst those, I'm I'm just of Scandinavian (laughs) heritage. An older generation, even as I think back to my grandparents, they weren't, they weren't quite as outward in expressing, outwardly expressing of their love. But the Bible talks about it all the time. And I think about that. I only talk about love a lot because God's word talks about it a lot. God is desperately interested in us first and foremost knowing about his love. Now are there other attributes and characteristics that you ought to know about as it relates to God? And the answer is yes. Can you, can you get out of balance in the sense if, if you never talk about or know nothing about any of the rest of them? 
And the answer is yes, but it starts, there's no relationship with God apart from his love. It starts there. And then the rest of it you learn about him contributes to your understanding of who your God really is. But over and over and over, especially John, talks about the love that God has for us and the love that we ought to have for each other. Spirit-produced love for others is naturally expressed through gracious actions towards others. So that's how we're working our way to this. This is what John is getting at, that if the, if the Spirit is producing his kind of love in you, then it's going to be naturally expressed through gracious and hospitable actions towards others, but in the context fellow believers. It's impossible to love as God intended on a purely internal basis. It is impossible to love as God intended on a pur- purely internal basis, apart from an external manifestation of that love. Now, I wouldn't be dogmatic about that statement. I'm saying it rather dogmatically. But I can't think of any example of how God's love could be internal to you and not be expressed. God is in the business of expressing his love. And so if God's love is being expressed in you or is in you, and you're yielded to the Spirit's working in your life, I can't see a scenario where it wouldn't be expressed externally in a way that would impact others. God isn't interested in his love being hoarded. He's interested in his love being shown and, and shared with others around you. And you say, why is that? Why is that? Why could I be relatively dogmatic about that statement? It's because that's not how Christ loves. And if it's his love that's working in you, then it would be the way he does it. His love is explicitly demonstrated through action. Let's get some page turning. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. Turn to 1 John to your left just a little bit. 1 John chapter 4 verse 9. I just want you to see that Christ's kind of love is explicitly demonstrated through action. We see 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us. There's our word. Shown towards us. Revealed towards us. Through some feeling that we had? Through some thought that kind of crossed our mind once somehow? No, it was shown to us in that God sent his only begotten son into the world with the expectation that we would live through him both in terms of positional truth and in terms of sanctification truth, second tense salvation. That we would live through him, meaning that he's the one who made it possible through the sacrifice of his son, and that we would live through him, meaning that we could live a life that would bring God honor and glory, because that's the context of First John, Christian living. So as we're thinking about fellowship with him, we could experience a life lived with him in intimate, in, intimate fellowship with him. Now you see something similar in Romans chapter 5 verse 8. Many of you have it memorized so you're free to turn there if you want to. But God demonstrated or he demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love through action as he sacrificed himself in the place of the guilty. Remember the whole context of the Bible is building up to this idea that man is sinful 
And because of that sinfulness, there's a barrier or a separation that is caused between God who is holy, God and his holiness. But that God wanted to make a way for man to be put in a right standing with him, to have fellowship and intimacy with him. And so he showed us that apart from somebody paying the debt that was owed, which the debt that was owed for sinfulness was separation from God. Unless somebody would pay that debt, which was to be permanently separated from God, and that was a debt that was only satisfied through death, that you wouldn't be able to have that access to God or that relationship with God or that intimacy with God. You certainly wouldn't be able to spend all of eternity with God. And so what were all the pictures? What was all the symbolism that you saw in the Old Testament as it built up to the climax of the story, the death of Jesus Christ on Calvary's tree. Well, you saw all these pictures and symbolism about how an innocent would need to die in the place of the guilty. This idea of substitution. That unless there was somebody that was innocent and, and, and was able to take that sin and bear it themselves in the place of the guilty, that the guilty sinner would have to be punished, would have to face God's judgment. And the judgment for sin was, again, eternal separation from him. And so there's the picture. The lambs were brought. The lambs died. The blood was shed. The guilty were, were able to go free. There was a substitution that took place, an atonement, where something else, some died in the place of the guilty. And it all climaxed then with, the perfect Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, now having, that was done over and over and over and over again, has a picture of what was going to be needed in order for man to be made right with God. There'd have to be a rescuer, a savior, who could die in the place or deal with the sinfulness of mankind. Man had a problem, he was a sinner. God had to provide a solution to that sinfulness. Will you accept that by faith? That's what the Old Testament individual had to do. Would they accept by faith God's provision to deal with their sinfulness? Now, they didn't know the, all of the details of a cross and a, being buried in a tomb and rising again the third, the third day. They didn't understand the Roman, a Roman government would be involved in this. They didn't understand that it would be the nation of Israel's rejection of the religious leaders that would lead to them effectively killing their own, killing the Messiah themselves. They, they didn't know all of that, though they could have. Looking backwards, they would have known it more. Isaiah 53 certainly talks about it, his rejection. But did they realize it would be them? Well, certainly they had plenty of examples of how God had offered this way of living life with him and trusting him, walking by faith. And they had rejected him over and over again, turned back to him in faith, rejected him, turned back, rejected, turned back, rejected. Anyway, you come to the climax of the whole thing is that the spotless Lamb of God dies on the cross to pay the debt that's owed by every man, woman, and child for past, present, and future. All of the sin of the world was laid on him as he became sin for us who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him or through him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I am the door by me. If anyone enters in, he shall be saved. How do I get in on this? He who believes is not condemned. He who believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so man had a choice to make. 
the rescuer came, died in the place of the guilty, a once and for all permanent sacrifice for man's sin. And the question is only, will you believe that? Will you accept that? Will you receive the gift that God offers you? To do so means to let go of everything else you were trusting in, your religious works, your church, your human efforts, whatever it is that you were placing your faith in, and put your trust in what he accomplished for you. And the moment you do that, the Bible says you're born into his family and that he will never let you go. And so you think about love that is demonstrated. How could love be demonstrated any more clearly through actions than Christ dying in the place of sinners even though he was perfect and spotless? It's only God's love. It was only his love for you that caused him to be willing to do that. Aren't you blown away by that? If that kind of love is going to be expressed in your life through the power of his spirit, don't you think that that's going to involve a demonstration of that love as it relates to the impact that God would have through you into the lives of others that he puts in your sphere of influence? I think that's the only conclusion you could reach. Now, you have to remember as you start to think about love that's being demonstrated through action, the moment I say that, there's always the tendency to say, I must produce this in my life. I must do this. And so you write in your notes, I must be more loving. I hope you're not. <laughs> Don't do that. He, he is loving. I must let more of him shine through me. That's the, a better way of thinking about it. You cannot mechanically and independently produce God's kind of love in your life. Supernatural love requires a supernatural power source. So John now praises Gaius for being hospitable and generous, and he gently encourages him to continue that practice. You see that here at the end of verse 6. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you, do, you will do well. So he starts to encourage him to continue that practice that had already been reported back to him as it related to these other fellow believers that were ministers of the gospel that Gaius had come into contact with, even though they had previously been strangers to him. So if you're going to restate this, it would be, you do well if you send them forward on their journey in a way that God would approve. Send them forward involves supplying what was needed for the journey. Now, is that always going to be the same thing? Supplying what is needed, uh, that's not always relating to financial support, though that was probably the primary aspect of it here. Food, shelter, hospitality includes more than money. Support sometimes includes getting somebody into your car and driving them somewhere. In this case, getting them onto your donkey and bringing them on to the next town. They're like, I got, I got to go 25 more miles. You know, I got a little bit of a limp in my, my gait because I've been walking so much. And hospitality or generosity or providing support could say, I can walk. You can ride my donkey. A wide variety of ways, right? Not the least of which, of course, is I'm going to be praying for you. I want you to know as you go on your way that I'm going to be praying for you. A pastor I've never met texted me this morning and said, Gus, I'm praying for you right now. And he actually shared what the prayer was. I, I, I don't naturally do that when I talk to people about what, you know, I'm praying for them. And she said what he was praying. I thought, well, wow. I know that there are plenty of pastors who do know me who tell me that they're praying for me. But here's somebody I've, I've never even met 
texting me to say, this morning, the first thing I saw on my phone was a text from him saying, I'm, I want you to know I'm praying for you this morning. So you want to undertake to be used of the Lord to meet the needs of what is necessary for these outreaches, supplying what is needed? Well, there's a lot of aspects to it. Now it says, worthy of God. Supply, you send them forward on their journey in a way that is worthy of God or that God would approve. It's any action that is directed by God via his spirit will automatically meet God's expectation and please him. So worthy of God likely refers to a manner that glorifies or pleases God. And I just want you to remember that if God's spirit is directing in your life, you don't have to wonder if the things that you're doing, the way that he's working or directing you, if, are those things pleasing to him? Yes, they're pleasing to him. If God is directing your life, you don't have to worry about the details You can have absolute peace knowing that God is never directing me in a manner that won't please him. Think about that. How goofy would that be? If your eyes are on him, you're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your your faith. You have this vertical mindset that says, not I, but Christ. I can do nothing apart from you, but with you I can do anything. I'm going to keep my focus on you. And if you have that mindset, then God is going to work in your life to direct your life, to to guide your steps, to illuminate your steps as a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. He'll do that through his word. He'll do that through his spirit. He'll do that through the encouragement of other believers. But he will do that. And then you can have absolute assurance that what how I'm spending my life is in a way that will bring him glory and has value in light of eternity. I am not wasting my life. I'm redeeming the time. You don't have to think about the exact details of that really at all as long as your gaze is fixed on him. Verse 7, because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing for the Gentiles. So this is just finishing a thought that was started here at the end of verse 6, if you send them forward on their journey in a manner that God would approve of, you do well because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. So why should these unknown brethren be treated with loving hospitality and generosity? Because, and it indicates that here's the explanation, they went forth for his name's sake. Literally, for the sake of the name they went out. I actually like that better. For the sake of the name they went out. These believers are traveling in a missionary ministry capacity. They were sent out from a local church that John was affiliated with in some way because he heard the report when they came back. So we talk about his name's sake. It's most likely a reference to Jesus, though you could argue about that. It's not Jesus can't be separated from God and vice versa. The Father can't be separated from the Son. The Spirit can't be separated from the Father or the Son. It's a triune Godhead. But I think his namesake in this reference in the church age here is a reference. Now, his, his name or his personal name in the Old Testament was revealed as Yahweh. And so some take more of a broader view of it. I think take a little more narrower view. I think it's speaking of the name of Jesus Christ. Turn to Acts chapter 5 because I think, I think that was the focus of this, these mission outreach when you came to the early church. Acts chapter 5 verse 40 And I'll put it up here on the screen because it's a longer passage in case you don't have a Bible with you, but I'm going to make the rest of you do some page turning. Acts 5.40. And here we have it up on the screen. 
So remember, in the early church, the early churches, their enthusiasm for proclaiming the name of Jesus is described as they're setting the world upside down or they're setting the world on fire. Imagine, imagine, that, imagine that your enthusiasm for sharing Jesus was described as turning the world upside down, shaking up all of the communities around us. You know, that could be true. That you're viewed as a, a zealot. That you're viewed as insane. Think of that kind of enthusiasm though. But that's what was happening in the early church. And the Jewish establishment didn't like it. So they were trying to put an end to it. So they heard a lawyer speak. He gave an idea. It was basically to say there's been other uprisings in the past where the people have turned and followed after different kinds of messiahs. But it's been short-lived, he says to them. It's not going to keep on. Let's, let's just let it die out. And so it says that's where we're picking up. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles, what did they do? They beat them. And then they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. Whose name are we talking about? The name of Jesus. And then they let them go. So they, the apostles, departed from the presence of the council. Catch this, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. There we have his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So I personally think we're talking about they went forth to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. That's why we should support them. That's why you do well to send them on their journey in a manner that's worthy of God. They went out to teach about and proclaim Christ. Colossians 1.21 says, Him we preach. In reference to who? Jesus Christ. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect or mature in Christ Jesus, that's the name that was on the lips of these early disciples and apostles and followers of Christ. Those that were in these local churches, when they went out, they went out to proclaim a message. When you go out, I hope you're going out to proclaim a message. I hope when you go out, when you even leave your home, when you leave the doors to this building, you're walking out to your car, I hope you have a sense that I'm going out. I'm going out to proclaim to be a light and to shine the light of Jesus, the glorious gospel of Christ, into the darkness around me. That's the mentality that they had and you ought to have. Now it says, taking nothing from Gentiles. They went out for his name's sake, taking nothing from Gentiles. This is further evidence that these brethren were traveling in a ministry capacity. Their policy was not to seek their support from non-Christians. They would not accept food, money, or other help from them. Taking from the Gentiles might imply that the Christians did not support their own. That's why they didn't do it. Pagans might question their motives and consider them to be like their own itinerant priests who were greedy for money, who traveled around as a way of just getting wealthy. And to this day, that remains the policy of most churches, including this one. We're not interested in having our church outreach supported by the unsaved, but by believers who see this as a part of their, this being their church family and that they want to support it. 
with free will giving, as unto the Lord, without any, with any pressure to do so. Right, so we, we believe in grace giving. Now verse 8, we therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. We ought to receive such. Now receive refers to hospitality and generosity. That word receive is replaced with support in almost every other English translation. We therefore ought to support such. Who are those? Those that went out for his namesake. Those that were, had been strangers to Gaius, but he saw them come to town on a mission to proclaim Jesus Christ, and he said, I can get behind that. The idea there is that Christians should support these ministry or missionary efforts, not the lost. And remember, there are many ways to support a ministry, and we've touched on that already. Now that, that, why should we support those that are proclaiming the name of Jesus? Why should we support ministry outreach, missionary outreach, teaching outreach? And the answer is given after that. So that is our explanation of purpose. Then we have the explanation is we may, that we may become fellow workers. And it carries the idea of being a partner in an endeavor. See, by helping support the missionaries, they work with them for the cause of the truth of the gospel. Anyone who supports those promoting God's truth becomes one of their fellow workers. They join the team, so to speak. That's how you partner in the gospel. Is you're doing it yourself, but you also have the opportunity to support others that are doing it as directed by the Lord. Not mechanically, not artificially, not making yourself do it, but as you're led and directed by the Lord. That's what we're talking about as we're looking about, talking about faith, faithfully generous and hospitable. Those are the qualities that God produces in us. We don't produce them in ourselves. And if we do, it ultimately doesn't bring him any glory. Now, in fairness, even if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, God is in the business of bringing good even from wrong motives. So he could do that, but it wouldn't benefit you. It still might benefit others. Just like Paul says, there's some that preach the gospel for the wrong reasons. They're seeking to add affliction (coughs) to my bonds. They want to make me feel worse. That's why they're preaching Christ. And he says... Regardless of their motives, I rejoice because in either event, Christ is preached. And so, that's just as an aside. Becoming a partner, joining the team. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. I want you to see this. I'm going re- to put it up on the screen in the ESV because they translate one word in a way that communicates the point a little clearer. pick up in verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. That sounds like a good prayer. What's he joyful for? For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now here's ESV. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, 
always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, that word partnership is interchangeable with fellowship. It's just another way to translate the exact same, it's the same Greek word. And different times, the word carries a, a, a variety of subtle different meanings, just like every word does. That's why there's subtle variety in how an English translation comes to be from another language. But subtle variety. I mean, compare that to what's in front of you. It's very subtle. But sometimes by reading more than one version, you actually get a better understanding of what the idea is. See, fellowship, would you see that as partnership? But that's what the word means, and it's often translated that way. And so when you're thinking about the idea here, what had happened with the Philippians is that they had financially supported Paul and his outreach to many other places. And so what did he say to them? A combination of your prayers for me and your actual financial support for me, you're effectively my partners in everything that we're doing. We're doing this together. This isn't just me out there doing this. I'm doing this as a part of a ministry team. So he wasn't doing it by himself. And I'm doing it with your partnership and your support. We're in this together. We're all a part of this endeavor. Completely different mindset, isn't it? Than this idea that lone wolf, we're all just doing this and we loosely come together whenever we feel like it. This idea that we're a part of a symbiotic body that's joined together, it's tightly knit together. That every part, every person has their giftedness. Every person has their thing that God wants to bring together with everyone else so that the body can function as it's intended to be. That your strengths, your giftedness from the Lord, it plays off of mine and vice versa so that together corporately we can have an effectiveness that we could never have individually. Pretty amazing. Some, it's almost like somebody who knew something put that plan together. You know, we naturally don't put plans like that together. One, because we don't have the understanding to do it, but two, because we're so focused on ourselves that we would never want to set our side, ourselves aside and come be a part of something bigger. That's not what comes naturally. What comes naturally is that when we come into something like this, we want to do it on our terms. And God forbid if anybody should offend us in any way, rub us the wrong way in any way. And God say, leave all that behind. Set that carcass aside. Lay aside the weight and the sin that so easily ensnares you or besets you. Leave off that and let me be the focus of this. And when that's true, the body is built up. It's edifying and it's effective at proclaiming the mission, and the mission for us is to proclaim Him. We preach Him. We lift Him up. We put the spotlight on Him. And we'll do that much more effectively when we can prayerfully just get our eyes on the Lord and off of our circumstances, off of other people, and off of ourselves. So there's this idea of partnership. What a fun little section here. Just to praise Gaius for this mentality that he's demonstrating to these fellow believers that are serving the Lord even though he never knew them they were strangers to him faithfully generous and hospitable and the question is does that describe you does that describe you faithfully generous and hospitable and I'll tell you what it describes God God is faithfully 
generous, and hospitable. All tied to what? Tied to the attribute of love. Because he's loving, he's generous and hospitable towards you. By his grace, it can describe you as he works in and through you. But the question you have to ask yourself is, will you let him? Can you get out of the way enough to just turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face? Because when that happens, then he works through you so that his way of thinking and his way of prioritizing or seeing people becomes your way of living and your way of prioritizing and seeing people. Of course, starting first with your thinking. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for this time that we could spend together in your word. Thank you that you're such a good God who gives us these examples and reminders of what your desire is for our lives and how it's going to have to be you working in us, in and through us, in order for these things to be true of us. Pray that we would see that, that we could get our focus back on you, that we could allow you to work in and through our lives so that we would have this kind of a mindset where we would want to lovingly partner with other believers to effectively proclaim the truth of who you are and what you've done for both the world and for us as a local church, as believers, that we could be reminding each other of that in a way that's rooted and grounded in love. Thank you again for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen.